0: A very good evening to you all. Please have your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 25 as we look at this wonderful little story together. Uh, before we do that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your living word. We thank you, you are speaking God. Uh, and sometimes you speak a word of warning that we need to, to hear. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that you would give us ears that are open to hear the warnings tonight father give us hearts that are uh, inclined to you that want to obey and to trust so lord help us not just to be those who hear the word tonight but also to be moved and to be doers also for we ask it in your name amen matthew 25 now uh, people have always been intrigued by the idea that we might be able to foretell the future you notice that <clears throat> it's been the plot of numerous books and movies i'm sure you can think of your favorites uh, usually they're involving time travel of t- time travel of some sort aren't they uh, and and we know we know the future uh, if you could know the results of the lottery or if you could know the results of sporting events you know things that you could place a bet on or something like that, I suppose you could win vast sums of money, uh, life-changing. If you knew the events and the timings of some misfortune that might befall, befall you, or even actually to know the time and circumstances of your death, well, perhaps these things could be avoided, right? So it's an interesting plot device to know the future. Of course, in our more sober moments, most of us know this is science fiction, Right? and that the closest that you and I are ever going to get, really, to uh, predicting the future is going to be the BBC weather forecast, which isn't saying very much, is it? But that doesn't stop countless people actually getting fortunes read, uh, reading weekly horoscopes, uh, turning to all sorts of weird sources to try and find out what the future holds for them. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wanting to know what the future holds. There's only really something wrong with the way you might go about finding out about the future. Uh, Many of those things have uh, roots in the occult. Aside from the fact that they don't work, because only God knows the future, uh, they can be very dangerous, stay away from them. But the desire is not a bad thing, that's the point especially when you go to the right place to find out about the future. God is the one who knows the future. And I put it to you that his word actually contains everything that you and I need to know about what lies ahead of us. Everything you need to know is here in the words. You've got a future forecast here right for you. Jesus tells this parable, and actually the two parables that come after it in Matthew 25 because his disciples have actually come to him asking about the future. They want to know what the future holds. You can read about it at the beginning of chapter 24. So if you've got a Bible open, or I think we would probably pop it up on the screen, although it's not perhaps as clear. Uh, Chapter 24, we read this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now, they ask this because Jesus has just said something, it seems, quite publicly in verse 2. So if you look a little bit higher up, in verse 2, we're having just had pointed out to him the magnificence of the temple complex, this gorgeous temple built by the, the mighty King Herod. They've looked at that temple complex. Jesus has responded, looking at that beautiful building, and says, do you see these things, verse 2? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. I mean, that's quite a statement to make. If you look at this gorgeous building in front of you, it's all going to go, Jesus says, be leveled. And so the disciples want to know the answer to two questions, actually, and they come sidling up to him a little bit later on. That's what we're reading about in verse 3. They want to know, first of all, when's that going to happen? When will this magnificent temple be so utterly destroyed? When's that going to happen, Jesus? And secondly, they want to know, what signs will accompany your coming at the end of the age? Maybe they conflated the two things together but they've got two questions there. And Jesus actually answers both of those questions in what follows. He tells them what they need to know about both. But our concern tonight is going to be with the second. See, the timings of that first one, says Jesus, really, in what follows, can sort of be discerned with some level of accuracy, and Jesus gives them a whole load of pointers so that they can actually be ready for when that happens, But concerning his coming at the end of the age, Matthew 24, verse 36, look. Concerning that day, says Jesus, no one, uh, that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now for you and I, here's the point there's really only one future event that you need to be really concerned about. And it's got nothing to do with the results of the next lottery draw or the circumstances of your death. The very next thing in God's diary, and actually on a page that he has not shared with anyone, apparently, according to that verse, is the return of his son, the coming of the son of man at the end of the age, as he puts it. And the three parables then in chapter 25 of Matthew that he tells are given to really rub in and get your attention about that which it is essential for us to know about the unknown day that is coming. Right? Got it? It's surely going to come. This is what you need to know about it. Okay, good. Now the first thing you need to know about that day is in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 25. We just had it read to us. And the first thing you need to know about that day is, it's a day that will be delayed. It's going to be delayed. Have a look. At that time, verse 1, when Jesus comes back, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. It's the setting. The scene is set, isn't it? The beginning of this wonderful story. Now, weddings were very different from what we expect in the days that Jesus was living. As I understand it, okay, having tried to read and get to grips with this, okay, it, it typically took several days to conduct a wedding uh, in, in these days. Remember the wedding that Jesus attended in, in Cana? Do you remember? We went to a wedding with his mother where they ran out of wine and Jesus made uh, wine out of water. Do you remember that? I mean, that, if that story tells us anything, it tells us it's hard to gauge how much stuff you're going to need for one of these weddings, okay, because they can go on. Now, much of what they did in a a, a wedding uh, was the other way around from how we do it. The occasion started, so I'm told, uh, with the groom coming to the house of the bride where they would conduct the ceremony amongst some close friends and family and relatives and then they would have a little party in the family home right there and then. Uh, And that, that could take... Well, how long's a piece of string? That's just, you know what family are like. It can just, it could be quick. It could take a long, long time. And then after that, everybody gathered and returned in a big procession to the groom's house, because of course if you're wise <laughs> as the parents of the bride, you don't want the mess in your house Okay, the big party that's going to be at the groom's house a massive serious celebration and it could take a long long time to do that Okay, so now with that scene set, we're introduced to ten guests, that's what these I mean they're called virgins in, in this story just maiden, they're, they're young maidens part of a wedding party, that's the point so I've called this, this story, uh, the story the reception party, that's really what we're talking about here we've got these 10 guests and they are waiting on the way or by the groom's house waiting for him to arrive the 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 marriage this is the marriage celebration that's going to happen they want to welcome the wedding party and join in the celebrations when he finally arrives but apparently those first celebrations back down there at the bride's house have taken a bit longer than expected there's probably an awkward uncle i don't know but we're not told why what we are told is that the groom, the bridegroom, is a long time in coming. So long in coming, in fact, that every member, all of, every single member of this reception party, this welcome party, is eventually overcome with sleep. They all doze off, every single one of them. The first thing you need to know, then, about the return of Christ is that we are to expect a long delay, right? A long delay. It's official. Jesus says so. Expect a long delay before I come back, before the groom comes. Now, the church has always been picked on about this. Uh, it, sounds, it can sound a bit like a, a bit of a fudge, can't it? We keep saying, you know, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back at any moment. Be ready. But is he? Why such a long delay? And the longer the delay, the the more the doubts rise in people's minds. It doesn't look good, does it? And the Apostle Peter records this exact criticism actually in the decades, um, the first decades of the church, I mean, really early on. I mean, take a look with me, I'll pop it up on the screen, from 2 Peter chapter 3, this is. And Peter says this, first of all, okay, you must understand that in the last days, that's the days that we live in, Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where's this coming? Where's this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has done since the beginning of creation. I mean, it sounds so contemporary, doesn't it? It sounds just like the kind of criticism we might receive today as a church, as people mock. People love to mock the church. And, you know, when people make silly predictions, saying, yep, he's coming back on the 22nd of June. Please don't quote me on that. (laughs) Okay, It just adds fuel to the fire, doesn't it? The dates come, the dates go, and everyone looks a bit silly. But Peter responds in verse 8. Look, a little bit later, don't forget this one thing. Brothers and sisters, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some people understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason for God's delay, the reason for this long delay, is God's patience. God's patience. The next thing in his diary might well be, you know, this, this the, the return of his son, and it's a huge red ring round the diary. But between now and then, he has his servants booked and arranged and organized to go out into the world so that through them he might call sinners to repentance. We live in the gospel age when the call of the gospel is going out into the world. And every extra day that we get. Every day when we wake up and Jesus has not come back is a further opportunity for those that we live amongst in this world to hear the gospel, to hear the good news that there is forgiveness. Every day is an opportunity for those of you who've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus to do so. To hear the good news that there's forgiveness, that there's peace with God, that there is eternal life available for all who would turn from their sin and put their trust in in the crucified and risen saviour, Jesus Christ. Today is one of those days. Today is one of those days, a day of God's patience, of his grace. And no one knows how many more days, like today, there are left. This might be the last. You don't want to get caught out with that. This is a serious thing, isn't it? Please hear me. So the return of Christ will be delayed... But actually, we should be grateful for that delay. That delay is, is, in one sense, is a really good thing because it's a delay for salvation. The second thing you want to know about this day in this, in this parable, second thing we learn, is that this day, uh, it will be a sudden day. It, it's going to come suddenly. Look at verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The, s- the scene starts. It couldn't be calmer, could it? It's quiet. You know. You've got 10 bridesmaids dozing in the twilight. You know you can, you can sort of almost hear the bats and you know whatever. the crickets. And the sleeping is not condemned, actually, is it? All of them sleep. I mean, we're only human. Tiredness comes upon us all. When we have to wait a long time, we get tired. We can't sustain a constant state of, of vigilance, can we? The big issue is what happens, what's going to happen when suddenly, out of the silence, breaking the slumber, bringing everybody up short, a cry rings out. Here's the bridegroom. Come and meet him. And Well, in this story, every one of the ten rise up They tidy themselves up, they dust themselves off in the darkness, and they start to inspect and tend to their lamps, their oil lamps. They need their lamps. Jesus actually says in, in chapter 24, and this is sort of a story illustrating the point, Jesus says that that day will be very much like, he draws this parallel between that day and the days of Noah. No doubt it looked in Noah's day like you know that day of the flood, uh, that, that it was going to be an ordinary day. The alarm clock went off. You know, nothing eventful, nothing different about it. People got up and repeated their daily routines. They made breakfast, they fed the cat, they put on some coffee and read the newspaper like they always did. They put on their coats and went out to work thinking about you know, what they were going to do in the evening. There might be parties, there might be a wedding just around the corner, says Jesus. Jesus. Jesus says they neither knew nor did they suspect anything till suddenly the flood was upon them and it took them away. And so we must live every day then, knowing that the delay will be long, says Jesus, it will be long, whilst at the same time knowing it's going to come suddenly. It'll be a long delay, but sudden. This is very, it's actually uh, very reminiscent to uh, waiting for a baby to be born, isn't it? Uh, this is how it goes. You know, you know it's going to take a while. You've got some vague idea. You know to expect. You know it's going to be the you know, best part of a year before the baby comes. But you have got no way, all things being equal, of knowing exactly when. Often it's when you least expect it, isn't it? I wonder if you had that experience. When we were expecting Josiah, I've asked him if I can say this. I don't see how it would even affect him. Uh, I was expecting Josiah... Uh, we we looked at the calendar and we thought, look, Sarah's only eight months along. I've still got time to remodel the downstairs of the house. So I took out a wall between the lounge and the kitchen, right? I'll never hear the end of this. And whilst I was up to my waist in rubble, uh, with an 18-year-old toddling around in the debris... The little tyke decided he was going to show up. Only eight months, you know, only eight months along, Sarah felt a bit funny before breakfast and pushed him out by lunchtime. It's amazing. (laughs) Likewise, we must be aware that this long delay will suddenly end. On that day, the coming of the Son of Man. Well, thirdly, also, it's a day that's going to divide. Look at verse 8. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. The cries rung out in the dark streets. The greeting party has, has risen from their slumber, dusted themselves off, tended to their lamps. The arrival of the groom is upon them. No one was quite expecting it so suddenly. But the foolish bridesmaids, well, they've got no oil now. They brought no extra, just what was, you know, what was in the lamps themselves. And it's nearly run out. The lamps are flickering and spluttering and dying and dwindling. Quick, lend us some oil, they plead with their counterparts. But they've only got enough for themselves. They've got to refuse to give any oil. And so the ill-equipped bridesmaids, they must go out, and hunt for those who will sell oil. I mean, that's going to be a fool's errand, isn't it? At midnight? I mean, I'm not sure they had 7-Elevens back then. And even then, (laughs) it wouldn't really help, would it? Being midnight. And it's while they're searching for that oil, looking for someone to sell it to them, that the groom arrives. And we're told, you know, the wise ones, those who were prepared, enter into the celebration in his home, Now, the point is, when you stand back and look at them, okay, imagine you're a bystander just looking at this scene, you would not have been able to tell any of this lot apart. You know, it's like weddings are the occasion when the bride, I I believe this is how it works, the bride gets all of her friends to dress the way that she wants them to, right? And generally, I understand uh, it's got to be in uniform dresses, which they are probably never going to want to wear again. I think the point is you don't want to take the glory away from the bride, right? I'm sure they all look lovely, but there we are. To look at them then that evening, you wouldn't have been able to tell who was wise and who was foolish, not from the surface. But the arrival of the bride that day divides the group immediately. Do you see? It's suddenly very apparent who belongs to which category, isn't it? And likewise, the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus returns, it will be clear. It will be a clear division. Those who are truly his friends, those whom he knows, will clearly be distinct and separated from those that he does not. Now, why should you care about that? Why does that matter? I mean, no doubt there's some of you, perhaps, you know, here who don't really think that does matter. All this Jesus stuff is just something that those around you are into. Maybe you get dragged along here in the evenings. Well, it matters because of the very next thing that we learn about Jesus' coming from this story. It's in verses 11 to 12. My fourth point there is, is his coming will exclude. It will exclude. Verse 11 Later, the others also came, sir, sir, they said, open the door to us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Somewhat chillingly, you see, verse 10, look at it, it ends with an abrupt statement that once the groom, along with his accompanying party, has entered the banquet, the door was shut. It was shut. The party, the great celebration of the arrival of of, of the groom, celebrating his union with his bride, it's begun. It's happening behind closed doors. And outside, on the wrong side of that door, are these foolish maidens in the darkness. And they approach, and they come to the door. And they stand at the door, says Jesus, and they plead, sir, sir. Or rather, Lord, Lord, open the door. But the groom himself, it seems he—he he, he seems to leave the celebrations and come to the door. And he's the one who sends them away. He does not know them, you see. Are they just gate crashes? Trying to get a free lunch? If they had truly been his friends, if they'd been people he knew, they would have been waiting for him. And so they are excluded, they are left in the cold, they are away from the celebration. And so what we see here then in this story is two very different destinies are presented to us and something as trivial as the lack of oil turns out not to be trivial at all. You know, we see the tragedy far more vividly if, if we return to the story of Noah, don't we? You know, This all sounds really quite domestic in this story Jesus is telling. But think of the story of Noah. And on that dreadful day too, a door was shut, wasn't it? And to be on the wrong side of that door was tragic. Like his father, you see, Jesus... Jesus, too, does not want anyone to perish. That's why he tells a story like this. That's why he warns us with a story like this. It matters whether you are wise or foolish. It matters that you or I might be on the wrong side of that door when he returns. So what must we do? Well, Jesus, having ended his story presents us with its application in the very last verse. Take a look with me. It's in verse 13. Therefore, says Jesus, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Keep watch. The moral of this story, as it were, its application to you and me is, be ready. Be ready. Be ready for that final day when the groom arrives, when Jesus returns, when the Son of Man comes at the end of this present passing age. If his return could be at any time and will be sudden and without warning, well then you and I must be ready in a permanent state of readiness, mustn't we? See, this story has an interesting quirk, actually, when you read it. Did you notice when we, the readers, are actually told about which ones are which, from the wise and the foolish? It's not at the point when the groom returns. It's right at the beginning, verses 2 to 4, where we're told that some, the wise, they had jars of oil with them. They took oil in jars with them, and the foolish are the ones that did not. Those with... A supply of extra oil were already wise. They were equipped for the event. That's the point. They were living for the arrival of the groom. You know, Bible interpreters have put forward all kinds of ideas about what the oil in this parable is supposed to be a symbol of. The Mormons suggest it's obedience, Jewish scholars say it's good works, still others want to sort of make a case for it being the Holy Spirit. Well, we're not, we're not told, and I think that actually completely misses the point of the parable. I hope you can see that now. I don't think the oil represents anything in this parable. It's just a prop to make the key point, the big point. Be ready. Being ready was what determined who got in and who was shut out, who was included and who was excluded from the joyful presence of the group. This parable tells us there is nothing more important in your and my future than the day when Christ returns. His coming is the next big thing. No one of us here knows what the future holds for us. But whatever else happens, you've got to make sure verse 13 there is something you've planned for. That you are ready No one knows the hour. No one knows when we must be living in a permanent state of readiness. We must be sure that when the groom comes, he knows us. He knows us and we know him. So how? How do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that is precisely what Jesus will address in the parables that follow. The important thing, though, is that you do know him. And he does know you. And I'm not going to be doing the next parable for a month, okay? It's just the way that the diaries worked out. But today is the day of salvation. If you don't know that you're ready, if you can't, then it cannot wait, can it? You must then ask. Come to Tiago. Come to myself. Come to another Christian friend. Find out how you can be ready for that day. We'd love to speak to you. Well, I hope that's left you on a a cliff edge waiting for the next parable. We're going to close with prayer and then I'll hand back to George. Father, we are staggered by your patience that you are, even today, actively seeking for lost men, women and children to come to you in repentance, to leave their foolish ways and come to you for rescue, for forgiveness, for peace, for abundant life we thank you for another day where you've held out that offer of salvation. What a joy and a delight it will be for those who truly know you and who are known by you to welcome you when you return. We want to join with our brothers and sisters who throughout history have cried, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. So we pray that we would be a people living in a state of constant readiness. That we would be eagerly anticipating the return of your Son, in whose good name we pray. Amen.